So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's summertime. Sun, sand, surf, walking with or without the dog. And for some of us, it's um, reading a book, catching up on a movie, maybe binging on Netflix. I won't intrude too much into your private life but I do have information that these things happen. <laughs> now, we've had a lot last year about stories, and this um, final summer series includes stories, and um, I want to make a confession. I enjoy reading. Now, this might be a shock to kids who may be uh, unfamiliar with books, but I do enjoy reading, and maybe a bit too much sometimes. Even as a child, books delighted me. In New Plymouth, where I live, the old Carnegie Library on King Street is now long gone. It was one of two and a half thousand around the world that were funded by Scottish-American businessman and philanthropist Andrew Carnegie. The room at the front was my world. It contained the children's books. The adult section was further in. And I still remember my childhood surprise when I discovered that most of the books in that area were actually not storybooks. That there was another world called non-fiction so boring. <laughs> so stories and books, I'm afraid, still grab me. It's uh, no surprise, therefore, that less than a week ago, I visited the Hobbit village, the movie set. I went to this home in Matamata area, the home of the movie trilogies, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, together with the family. It was fascinating on that Matamata farm. The, we walked past clotheslines of Hobbit clothes. How many of you have been there? Put your hand up. Any been to that one? One, two, three, four. Oh, the rest of you, you've got to go. You've got to be converted. Go, go there. So we walked past those clotheslines of hobbit clothes and past the rounded doors of the hillside hobbit houses, including those of Frodo Baggins and his nephew, Bilbo Baggins. We even went inside one. And this was a replica of an interior that once was found only in the movie set. But now, here it was, to make it, they scraped the top off a hill, built the set on site, and replaced the top of the hill and grassed it. And you wouldn't know. So there's the set. And here it was, minute attention given to every detail. Incredible. But then that was the genius, wasn't it, of Peter Jackson. The conversion of fantasy into reality. Just so believable. You know, I reflected on this, on stories, and of fantasy. And it led me to answer some questions, which I will now disclose to you, if I can remember that this thing goes on by 
pushing that there, there or there? Are we on? No, we're not. I need to get that on, don't I? This is most embarrassing. I know how to do this. I've done it before. Don't help me, Lana. I've done it. No. Do help me, Lana. I haven't done it. Helena! Help! I switched this on, but I forgot to switch that. On the other side. Oh, goodness gracious me. Yeah. So now I've lost... You got me online again? Apologies to those that are listening online. All right then. So I asked myself, as I was saying to you a moment ago some questions and these result these ones were questions that I tried to address to myself and that might come up on the screen if we ever survive this current glitch so I asked myself about fantasy because the hobbits they're fantasy so what is it and what might be helpful what might be unhelpful what about reality and where does faith fit in so that doesn't sound quite like stuff from the Bible this morning, but we'll get there. So first of all, what is fantasy? Oh, good gracious me. <laughs> all right then. For those of you interested and those that are not, please pay attention. Fantasy is a particular type of story. There are ancient, very ancient examples and a number of modern ones. They include Greek myths. I still remember at school, finding the stories of those Greek myths, those heroes. And then there's William Shakespeare. A Midsummer's Night's Dream, that play, is fantasy. There's Jonathan Swift's book. What did he write? Jonathan Swift. Gulliver's Travels. Have you read Gulliver's... No, I won't ask that question. There's Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland. And there's Tolkien's, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and the C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, and J.K. Rowler's Harry Potter series. And there's all the allure of science fiction and the fantasy worlds there. There are movies based on comics that enlarge the fantasy further. Superman, Batman... The world of the Marvel Universe, capture and absorb people today. Go to the movies, capture the stuff. It's all there, it's all fantasy. Let me, yeah, look at that, there we are. So they're the questions. Isn't that great? So this is the first question, what is fantasy? And we've discussed that, now you know. So relax. The fantasy stories are stories that deviate from the real world to such an extent that they allow us to escape, key word, from the real world and encounter an imaginary realm that is quite magical and extraordinary. So, that's about fantasy. In fantasy, the real universe shifts. The laws of physics and gravity can be abandoned. And there's this other amazing area of science fiction as well. Now, in contrast to this fantasy fiction, fiction itself focuses on stories that are possible, 
other than what seems to be impossible. And that may be a little easier to imagine ourselves entering into the story. We might even engage and, and bond with one of the major characters in the story. But some of these are pretty close to fantasy too. What books and movies do you find yourselves reading or watching? Romance? Uh-huh. Fantasy there sometimes. Detective? Yeah. What about war? What about the coming of age? What about revenge? What about action movies? How do these affect you? I want you to think a little bit for a moment with me about what may be helpful about fantasy. And I want you to think about three things. Escape, imagination, and values. So deal with escape first. Now, right now, we're in holiday mode. The opportunity to escape from the real world is pretty therapeutic. Stress happens. Burnout occurs. But in story, we relax, we let go, we dismiss from our minds all those things that concern us. We chill out. We enter a different space in a different world, whether that's romance or detective or science fiction or fantasy. And we come back, return refreshed and a bit relaxed. The dangers and difficulties of reality diminish. Our lives might be mundane, ordinary, often monochrome, sort of black and white, maybe just grey sometimes. But they become infused with colour as the possibilities of the story carry across and translate into the present. I wonder if that's what occurred with the Apostle John. Imagine him, captive, exiled, alone in his prison cave on the island of Patmos. That wasn't quite fantasy. This was vision. But he escaped all of that mundane, ordinary, drab in the book that he wrote. In Revelation... There's another world, another universe, a new world, an opportunity which goes beyond the bleak future to a freedom and space, hope, glory. This is the great escape. But of course, it's more than fantasy. And Revelation uses a coded writing. Now, for those of you that are interested, and again, for those that aren't, listen carefully. Revelation uses a writing that is called apocalyptic. Got that? That's one new word today. There's another one coming. Apocalyptic writing. See, John lived in hazardous times. Christians were victimized, tortured, killed. Writing in code protected God's people for the message was treasonous. God's message was radical. And not just at the end of the first century when John was writing, but even today, the message is radical. Apocalyptic tells a story. The battle between good and evil. The presence of the kingdom of God. The call to repentance to escape judgment. And the promise of the future victory of God and his people over evil. We need that. 
we get trapped and caught so easily in the despair, the tragedy that we find around us. Listen then. And I have not put this on the screen. You'll need to listen. John wrote this. I looked, he wrote. I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice I'd heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads from the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living things was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face, and the fourth was like an angel in flight. Each of these living things had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Are you with me still? This is John's vision. This is a world of code, unwrap it if you can. Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And they exist because you created what you pleased. Then I saw a scroll, a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began, says John, to weep bitterly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one 
one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp. And they had gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seal and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders, and they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. And then I heard every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang, Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. Isn't that amazing? That's John's vision. And that was Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. So you've had your double dose of the Bible today. Two chapters. Our imagination is stirred, almost overwhelmed by the vision. And we may be puzzled, even despite the information that is added by John to interpret something of the vision. We're swept up by what is yet to come. And I want you to think for a moment about imagination, because that was the second word. You see, story allows us to enter another's life or situation or universe. Story stimulates us. Perspectives change. Possibilities open up. Horizons expand. We have permission to see things differently or to explore something very different from our own small world. There's a word that describes why we connect so powerfully. It's the word vicarious. It's why we relate to a character or a situation. It's because we identify, we become, 
we become. We become the character. We're part of a scene in a book and maybe especially in a movie. The unexpected occurs and what happens to us? We flinch. A door slams. We jump. The knife is raised. We shudder. Our heartbeat is elevated as lovers kiss. Years ago, there was a pop song that captured another vicarious response. Sad movies always make me cry. You see, imagination transports us, we identify, we're into the scene. And this is the power of storytelling, the dynamic of story. Jesus speaks, and we are the beaten man, robbed, bleeding at the side of the road. We see the priest with his mid-skyded purity cross the road, and he avoids us. Then along comes the religious layman. He doesn't care. Passes by, deserts us. Then the renegade comes, the guy on the outside, someone with contaminated religious affiliations, and the unlikely one gives help. It's given with compassion, given with generosity. But we may also identify with one of those other characters, and we stop, we're convicted. Maybe we even change. Our imagination brings us into the scene. And that story, along with so many others, truth is unwrapped and values start to emerge. You see, books, movies, fantasy all contain content which reflect values. We're changed by them. The things which values are things we believe in, things which are important to us, the beliefs we live by. The range is enormous. Which of these things do you regard as really valuable? Money, friends, family, education, organization, justice, compassion, cars, conservation, honor, courage, productivity, power, humility, children. Success. One of C.S. Lewis's Narnia series is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. How many of you read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? One, two, three, four, five. Buy it. Read it. Enjoy it. It's a book. It actually does something for you. Two of the children... Edmund and Lucy, together with their bratty cousin, Eustace, find themselves in Narnia. For those of you who don't know, C.S. Lewis is a writer, but a Christian. And some of the stuff he writes, both for adults and children, is absolutely transformational. So these children find themselves in Narnia, this magical fantasy land, traveling to their destination. They stop off at various islands, and on one of them, the travelers encounter a wizard. And the wizard makes this statement. 
To defeat the darkness out there, you must defeat the darkness inside yourself. And what Lewis does is brings into his stories, even stories for children, theology, Christian theology, and Christian truth. And any familiar with the Bible will recall the verse from Ephesians that speaks of the Christian struggle not being against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil, principalities and powers of darkness. You see, Eustace is a pain. He's a whiner, a brat. He's discontented with everything and everyone that... uh, doesn't meet his wishes or gratify his personal need or personal greed. His story unfolds on another island. Eustace's moment comes when he discovers a dragon's treasure hoard. Greed takes hold. He covets the treasure. He rests on it. He even sleeps on it. And then a transformation occurs. The consequence of his self-centeredness becomes real. His inner life becomes an outward reality. For Eustace becomes a dragon himself. Now, maybe we can't help but be sorry for him in his shock and anguish, captured as he is by his own gratification. Truth is redemption, and Eustace escapes. But this only occurs as he meets the lion. Aslan, in this one biblically identified as the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus himself. And Eustace finds triumph over selfishness, fear, and eventually faith in Aslan, the lion of the tribe of Judah. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't do it myself, Eustace testifies later on. And there are lots of illustrations that open windows into Christian truth in the Narnia series. Edmund and Lucy are told that they have outgrown their time in Narnia. But Aslan comforts them, and he says these things. I think I've got this one down. Yes. And Aslan says this. In your world, I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. At its best, fantasy can do this. There's a hint, a window, a wonder, a possibility, and God is a little closer. But there is another side that I also want us to briefly think about. It's this. What may be unhelpful about fantasy, about stories? Same three words, escape imagination, and values. You see, to escape may be okay, 
It may even be necessary sometimes, in its right place, but there's a danger. You see, there's a word, isn't there? Did you get the word? Escapism. And that escapism may have a place. Sometimes we need to escape. But if we get locked in, it's a problem. So what is escapism? This is a challenge. Because escapism may result in our being trapped in the very thing that we're trying to use to deliver us from reality. When we become trapped in the world of fiction, so that things that are not real become closer to reality, when we use repeatedly an activity or a behavior to distract our mind from reality or unpleasant emotions, we may use escapism to avoid pain or discomfort. Sometimes we occupy ourselves with this to evade persistent feelings of depression or sadness. The goal is to avoid encountering truth, resolving and finding redemption. It's a way of avoiding reality and a way forward is to choose to stay trapped. Oh, I want to introduce you to the word of the day. <clears throat> Latibulate. How many know what latibulate means? Oh, I'm shocked. None of you. Well, it is an ancient word, I must confess. It's about 400, 500 years old. But it does capture something. I want you to be careful about latibulate. Latibulation and even latibulating. Because the word, the definition of the word is this. It's to hide in a corner to escape reality. And that's the danger with escapism. We use the romance novel to escape reality. We use science fiction. We use it to escape the narrow world that we live in. But the possibilities of the good in that can be eclipsed as we actually use this as a way to escape what about the next thing? That next word is imagination, and are there cautions with regard to that? Guy, or which is the French pronunciation, I understand, of the word guy, G-U-Y, was a five-year-old French lad. He and his mother lived with us for a while, but their trip to a cinema was a disaster. Together they were enjoying the Superman movie when suddenly Guy stood. He loved the movie. In his imagination, he was Superman. Without hesitation, he took a step forward and launched himself from his dress circle seat. Only his mother's swift clutch of his clothes rescued him that bewildered lad from injury or death. You see, imagination lost out to reality. To imagine is a gift, but indulging and living in 
that imagination is to entertain disaster. <clears throat> and then there's values. We all hold values, things that are important to us, things that we love, we hang by them. We live by the values. But values can be negative as well as positive. Take the value of privacy. There are lots of examples. But I felt important to deal with this one this morning. In some situations, privacy is not only appropriate, it's essential. Yet, it can be unhealthy. And there's one example of privacy that's unhealthy. It's when this value is so dominating that it resists truth. It's when disclosure of the true story degrades into a secret. Whether a secret is held through shame or arrogance, something happens when we forget a message that the psalmist wrote about. God would surely have known it, for he knows the secrets of every heart. God always knows. Concealment from the Lord's is impossible. Think about it. Concealment from the Lord, from God? Ridiculous. There's no secret he does not know. We may fantasize that something's safely hidden, that's all well, all's hunky-dory, but God knows. The good news, of course, is found in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Confession, after all, has to do with disclosure, revealing secrets. And the one who is both faithful and just is totally committed to forgive any and all of our disclosures to him. But I suspect there's a further step. For many of us, freedom from destructive fantasies of concealment is in the principle found in the letter that James wrote. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You see, the confessional has a place. It may be public or a more private disclosure. But moving out of secrecy by disclosure is embarking on a journey into the liberating power of truth and wholeness. Of course, so often we buy into fantasy. It's like the treasure that Eustace discovered. We hold it tightly. We believe concealment is new, though actually it's something as ancient as Adam and Eve. We may claim that concealment and privacy is even self-protection, that reality is too painful. But that's also a deception. The tug, the whisper, the allure to conceal comes from the same source as the one named by Jesus as the Father of lies. How about faith? A few final words. First, remember the power of story. Jesus used this as everywhere in the Bible. Faith can be nurtured in stories, even though that which quite unintentionally disclose God's truth. 
In Letters to Malcolm, C.S. Lewis speaks of the pleasures of enjoyment as the shafts of future glory. Enjoyment for Lewis are the shafts of future glory, which a gracious God is glad to give us. But equally remember that reality is found in the true word, in Jesus himself, and in the written word, God's word, the Bible, which witnesses to Jesus. More than a century ago now, an old preacher captured the importance of this amazing book. People who pray for power but neglect the Bible abound in the church. But the power that belongs to God is stored up in the great reservoir of his own word, the Bible. We cannot obtain or maintain God's power in our own lives or in our work unless there is deep and frequent meditation on the word of God. Don't let go of the reality that God himself brings to us. And that's a challenge for 2024. And maybe some prioritizing is needed. And yet, there's more. It's one thing to get into the word of God. But it's another thing to let the word of God get into you. And that's the pathway of our story. The fact is, we're all living a story. And even when the story is challenging, troublesome, or even a disaster, even when we find ourselves so imperfect, I want you to remember this. Trouble never comes to someone unless it brings a nugget of gold in its hand. God is there in the trouble. God is there in the disaster, even when it's our story. Don't avoid it. Resist the fantasy that is negative. So let's read our books, watch our movies, and then maybe even binge on Netflix, but remember to do so with discernment. Set boundaries that will guard your heart. Look for God's truth in characters, in situations. Look for the warning of God in behaviors that degrade. Look for God in beauty and creativity. Look for his image in the values that reflect his kingdom. And be aware of the shafts of glory. Enjoy summer. <laughs>